0: Welcome to Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library podcast. On today's show, I sit with a prominent podcaster and journalist to discuss issues of race and culture, teaching audio journalism, and the impacts of hip hop music. So stick around, this should be fun. Back in March of this year, the San Diego Public Library hosted Berkeley professor and former NPR journalist Shireen Marisol Meraji. Shireen spoke at the Clara Breed Civil Liberties Lecture Series, which honors former San Diego City Librarian Clara Breed and her triple legacy of service, decency, and advocacy on behalf of Japanese Americans imprisoned by the U.S. government during World War II. I got a chance to speak with Shireen about growing up in the Bay Area, her career in journalism, and transitioning from Code Switch host and producer to college professor. I hope you enjoy. Shireen, how are you?
1: I'm good. I just got over being sick, so I'm feeling extra good. It is not raining because you know it's been pouring, the sun is shining. I feel healthy. I'm good. I'm happy to be here with you, Bob.
0: Right on. I'm glad you're feeling better. First off, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Your lecture at the Clara Breed series was fantastic. Lots of folks came through and they were really psyched to see you and hear from you. Thank you. So you've stated that you didn't grow up on NPR. What were your sources as a young person for news and discussions of race and culture?
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, actually, I I like to joke. I mean, it's not a joke. It's actually real that when I got my first job at NPR as a production assistant, that my mom uh, said that she asked around to all her friends to know what NPR was. (laughs) And then when she found out what NPR was, she came back to me and she was like, wow, that's a big deal. How did you get that job? And I was like, Thanks, mom. (laughs) But yeah, so um, I did not grow up on NPR, obviously. Um, My dad, though, he watched a lot of PBS news. So he watched, I think it was called the McNeil-Lara Reports, now like the PBS News Hour. That was appointment television for him. He also read multiple newspapers and encouraged us to read. The Sacramento Bee was always in our house. My dad had a a subscription to Popular Science magazine. That was something that was always around and I could read articles in that if I wanted to. I would say, and this is something that you and I talked about earlier, that I did learn a lot from music and the kind of music and the genre of music that I was obsessed with growing up and still am, which was hip hop. Um, I learned just a lot from listening to music. Um, And I watched Spanish language television at my grandparents' house, and the news was always on TV in Spanish at my grandparents' and what they covered on Spanish language news was definitely different than what they were covering on PBS. So I I think I had a broader view of what the news could be and, and a more international perspective as well, because my grandparents always had the news on in Spanish.
0: So just kind of a follow up, tell me who were some of the who were some of the artists that you were really messing with? Who were you really pumping? Who were you really listening to?
1: Well, okay. So early on in in my hip hop life, um, I listened to a lot of Digital Underground. And so I'll get back to Digital Underground because like news, etc. and who I was bumping in, in that respect was I would say Public Enemy. One song that I feel like was very informative for me and educational was um, Can't Trust It. It was it was really kind of a lecture on the transatlantic slave trade. And that hit me very deeply. And then I wanted to go and do my own research after listening to that song. Um, it also just has an incredible beat. <laughs> um, if you haven't heard that song, you should listen. And then I listened to a lot of Uh, Boots, Riley, and the coup from the Bay Area. And, you know, Boots has this really complex critique of capitalism that he brings into so many of his rhymes. And one of my favorite songs is Fat Cat's a Fish, which is just an incredibly educational and entertaining critique of capitalism. Plus, the storyline is great. Um, His rhyming is so it's just perfect. The beat, everything. If you haven't heard Fat Cat's Bigger Fish, you should definitely, definitely listen to that song. And then getting back to Digital Underground. I mean, this is silly, but growing up as a Puerto Rican in California, I did not feel a whole lot of representation. Um, Digital Underground is also another hip hop crew from the Bay. And I-, I don't know if you remember the Humpty Dance, but at the end, you know, he does the shout outs for everybody to do the Humpty dance based on their ethnic or racial identity. And he, he shouts out Puerto Ricans, do the Humpty hump, (laughs) do the Humpty hump. And as a kid who felt like she was the only Puerto Rican uh, in the entire state of California, I know that's not true, but as somebody who felt that way, when I heard that, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm seen. I, somebody recognized me. I, I'm sure Samoans feel exactly the same way when they hear that song. So that's just sort of a taste of how influential hip hop has been in my life and learning about my own racial identity and learning about history and politics and capitalism and everything. Um, big, big credit to hip hop.
0: So, Code Switch has been around since 2013, initially as a blog and then later as a podcast. How has race and culture reporting changed in the past 10 years?
1: I can give you an example from my time at NPR to sort of show you the evolution of that. Uh, So, in 20, it was 2013. There was an anniversary story that we were doing. NPR Music had asked me to do an anniversary story on hip hop, what they were calling hip hop's greatest year, getting back to hip hop, which they said was 1993. It was like this very creative experimental time in hip hop. And they wanted me to do a story about hip hop in the Bay. And I did this story. I was really proud of it. I had some heavy hitters in the story and, um, it was very much about race (laughs) and, uh, one of the editors on all things considered who had agreed to run the story when he heard the final version of it, he said it was too inside baseball and that there was stuff that we were talking about that uh, NPR listening audience wouldn't understand. And I disagreed vehemently and still I got a ton of pushback and they didn't air that story on all things considered. I did get the story aired later on morning edition and found out that the story was being taught at Columbia's journalism school as an example of how journalism can talk about race and class and music all at the same time. And they obviously didn't think it was inside baseball and that people wouldn't understand it. Sometimes I think that NPR editors didn't give the NPR audience credit for what they did know and what they could understand about race or what they were Curious about and open to learning about. And I think that that has changed quite a bit in the last nine or 10 years. I think that same editor would not have the same pushback. And I wouldn't have gotten the same pushback as I got early on in my career when I was at an editorial meeting and I would bring up a story that intersected with race. And people would say, well, Who's going to care? How do we, why do we care about that? Make me care about that. How is our listeners, um, how, how does that pertain to their lives? And it's like, what do you mean? How does that pertain to your listeners' lives? Like, this is the story of the United States of America. These are people's neighbors, community members, etc. Of course, this is going to be pertinent. Like, it, it was just a very odd pushback and an odd question. And I think that you're hearing that question less and less from gatekeepers in positions of power in journalism. I think they're understanding now that, oh, this is important and these, these stories are important to tell. So that's good. I hope it lasts.
0: I think if there's anything that's kind of been a recurring idea since I started doing podcasting is that you got to give the listener more credit, you know? Yes the listener deserves all the credit. I don't know, I think that there's just so much concern of like, oh, is anybody going to like this? Is anybody going to be into this? And I think like all the like the the super nerdy podcasts that are out there that are just so niche and, you know, to use your phrase, inside baseball, there's an audience for all that and people are are interested in in that kind of stuff. So, anyway,
1: I agree. I agree and I don't think we give the listeners enough credit. We like infantilize the listening audience.
0: So obviously, race and culture reporting intersects with issues of civil liberties. Can you tell me about working within this space and how it's shaped you as a journalist?
1: I think this intersection with race and culture reporting and civil liberties is really interesting. And this is a great question that I hope I can answer. Succinctly and articulately. I would really argue that in the United States, the policies that have been put in place have historically excluded large swaths of people from the civil liberties enjoyed by, in the beginning, only white men, <laughs> later white women, you know? And so this conversation about race in this country really intersects with civil liberties because it makes people examine. Who they're automatically granted to. <laughs> and when we're talking about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, et cetera, et cetera, like who are these civil liberties automatically granted to in the United States and who still has to fight for them, you know? Even the conversation around reproductive choice, oftentimes the conversation is about access to abortions and abortion rights. But there there's also this issue of forced sterilization that we talked about on Code Switch and we reported on that women of color have really suffered from and continue to suffer from, like forced sterilization is still occurring in certain places. And that's that's also an issue of civil liberties. It's Abortion rights is one thing, but also we have to remember there's this other thing, these other rights that women have been denied and very much denied because of their race and their class. And those conversations are the kind of conversations that we were having on Code Switch. And that if you're doing good race and culture reporting, that's really how it's intersecting with civil liberties and those who have them and those who have to fight for them still. I hope that answers your question. It's a great question.
0: Thank you. And absolutely, no, that's a that's a wonderful answer. What was your experience with the Neiman Fellowship like? What were your takeaways?
1: So the Neiman Fellowship is this awesome opportunity for journalists who are mid career to kind of take an academic year, so nine months to step away from daily deadlines and all the pressures of being in a newsroom and think and do the kind of work that those types of deadline pressures don't give you time to do. So in my case, I have done a ton of reporting on the Latinx community or A community, Latino, Latin Latina, Hispanic community. But my Spanish was always something that I was ashamed of. It's still not amazing. But I had this time, I had this entire academic year to devote to heritage language learning and really kind of shoring up my Spanish. So I ended up taking a Spanish class for heritage language learners over that time, two semesters at MIT, because through the Neiman, you could take classes at Harvard, MIT, various universities that were in the Boston, Cambridge area. So I took this amazing class at MIT most of my classmates were Mexican or Mexican American. And they were also trying to shore up their Spanish. And I was being challenged, because they were, they were better than me, (laughs) a lot of the time. And, um, and I learned so much from them, too, because most of them were from MIT. So they had the STEM background. And I have more of a, arts and culture background. So we learned from each other and we were learning Spanish together and we were sharing about our shame and how we felt not feeling confident enough in our heritage languages. It was just a really beautiful experience. So I would say that's the one thing that I got from the Neiman that I will treasure forever was the time to do something that I've always wanted to do. And it's something that is going to make my reporting a million times better and stronger. Mostly because like it's giving me the confidence to go into my own community and speak Spanish with confidence and pride instead of being like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so ashamed. I, I still used it before, but I didn't have the confidence. So that was great. And then another thing is, is you're with a cohort of other amazing journalists. So you're learning alongside them. You're coming up with ideas together. We still have group chat where we're constantly in, in communication. And we want to collaborate on projects. And And these are journalists from all over the world, Colombia, Venezuela. China, Hong Kong, uh, Denmark, just journalists from everywhere. And it's got an amazing network of journalists because it's been around for years. So that was another really incredible thing about being a part of the Nieman. So it was the network, it was the time to think. And in my case, it was the time to get better at my heritage language or one of them, which is Spanish. And it was just meeting friends for life. I loved it. I highly recommend it.
0: That's so dope. I miss school and I don't miss school.
1: I know what you mean. I know what you mean.
0: Once upon a time you imagined yourself as a teacher and now you're a professor at Berkeley. How have you found the transition from working in the field to being an instructor?
1: I love it. I am so happy in the classroom, but even happier editing my students work, like doing one-on-one editing. With my students, it is so incredibly gratifying. So, when my students and my students have been broadcast and published since I've been working with them, this is, I'm rounding out my first year in academia. And there's something so much more gratifying and fulfilling when you hear your students on the radio or on a podcast than when you hear yourself. Like, when I'm listening to myself, which I hate doing. When I'm listening to myself, I'm just criticizing everything that I hear. I'm like, oh, I could have said that better there, and I sounded rambly, and I was using too many ums, or you know what I'm saying, or you knows (laughs) there, and I'm just consistently critiquing myself. But when it comes to the students, all I feel is joy and pride. Like, oh my gosh, how exciting that they're getting this story that they worked so hard on on the air and so many people are going to get to hear it. Oh, I love that. I love that part of the job. It's so much fun. So that's been great. And then I think the transition has been fairly smooth because I was doing a ton of mentoring at NPR. We on Code Switch had a lot of young producers who came in as interns because the pipeline into NPR was not that robust, especially the pipeline to get journalists of color into the system. And so we were sort of creating our own pipeline at Code Switch. And I did a lot of informal mentoring of the producers who would come in starting as interns, and then we would hire them on. And A lot of those producers are the exact same age as the students that I'm working with now. They were in their early 20s, mid-20s, so graduate student age. So a lot of it was very parallel doing that kind of work. And so in that way, working with the students felt like a much smoother transition than I thought it would be. Then there's academic politics, and I'm not going to get into that. But I think um, the quote is, the fights are so bitter because the stakes are so low. (laughs) And I'll just leave it there because academic politics is, oh, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And the academics who are listening to this, they're probably all nodding their heads and and saying, yes, indeed.
0: What can we expect in the future from Shireen Marisol Miraji?
1: Ooh, what can you expect in the future? Well, I just signed a contract to do a podcast with Vox Media and Audible, which is going to really focus on the intersections of gender and race in the workplace. And the main focus is going to be on interviews with women who are in the midst of navigating really challenging career and life circumstances. I'm incredibly excited about that because I feel like it's going to be quite therapeutic for me. <laughs> so while it's going to be work, I think I'm going to learn a lot. And I think there's going to be a lot of room for healing and in, in those conversations, for me as the person who is doing the interviewing, and hopefully for the listeners as well. So that's happening. And then yeah, and I'm going to continue to teach. My goal really is to never step out of being a working journalist, because I think that is going to inform my teaching. I think that the students who are learning to be working journalists, I think they learn more from people who are in the world of journalism, because it's changing All the time. And so if you're not there, and you're not doing the work, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's more difficult to teach the students what it's actually like out there and to prepare them for journalism of today, and journalism of tomorrow and journalism of the future if you're if you're not actually doing the work. So I'm going to continue to do that. And the first step is hosting this podcast.
0: That's dope. I'm super psyched to hear that because we still need your journalism in the world. Oh, thank you.
1: I miss it too.
0: At the same time, young people, students also need you to to be a teacher. So
1: Yeah. Hopefully I can balance the two. We'll see how that works. Check back in with me.
0: Okay, for sure. For sure. What are you listening to these days?
1: So whenever people ask this question, they usually ask me what podcast I'm listening to because... I'm a long-time podcaster, and it's hard to answer that because I've been avoiding podcasts lately, mostly because it feels like work, and I'm listening to other people's podcasts, and I'm editing them while I'm listening, so I'm like, oh, I could hear that internal edit, or oh, you should have talked to this person instead of that person. So instead of listening to podcasts, I do listen to podcasts. I've got my regulars. I actually would love to talk about audiobooks, Because I have been listening to a lot more audiobooks. And I have three audiobook recommendations for your listeners. The first one is a memoir. It's a memoir about Diana Getch's transition about her life as a trans person. It's called This Body I Wore. So good. Diana is an incredible writer. She's a poet. Uh, She does her own narration for the audiobook. It's beautifully written. It's so well narrated, and I really feel like memoirs should be narrated by the people that, if they can, do their narration by the people who wrote the book. And it's it's a really good story. And that one is called This Body I Wore. I recommend the audiobook. It's by Diana Getch. The second recommendation is his name is George Floyd. One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. It is so, 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 so good. It's written by two reporters who were at the Washington Post at the time, Robert Samuels and Tolu Olurunipa. I hope I said your last name right, Tolu. It's an audiobook as well, and that is actually narrated by an actor, Dion Graham. Oh my gosh, Dion does a fantastic job with the narration. The book is powerful, powerful, powerful. It's educational, and obviously it's like, incredibly moving you really get to know george floyd as a person beyond the headlines beyond the protests and the reckoning and it's just packed with history that unfortunately bob so few of us ever learn in school that's a high recommend for me and lastly since we started talking about hip-hop we've got to end on hip-hop if you love hip-hop like we do dilla time is a great book. It's about the late great hip hop producer Jay Dilla from Detroit who died much too young from complications from lupus. It's written by Dan Charnas. He also does the narration for the audiobook and it is fire. There's music mixed into the audiobook and I love how they did that. It's just great and packed with information. So much history and context about how race and class play out and work in Detroit. There's a ton about beat making and music theory. And, you know, of course, at the core of the book, the essence of the book is just a fascinating portrait of a very complicated (laughs) and very talented human being. Bob, I know you read this book and you actually reviewed this book. So so what do you think of that recommendation?
0: I think it's a great recommendation. I read the print version when it came out. And I know when the paperback came out, there was a whole bunch of extra stuff that was put into it, which I've been meaning to check out. But now that you're mentioning that Dan Charnas did the narration and that there's music and that there's a bunch of stuff also in the audiobook version, I think I'm actually going to check that out.
1: Oh, you have to. It's so good.
0: Yeah. And, and
1: Dan is a great reader. Like he should have a podcast. I'm sorry to interrupt, but Dan, you should have your own podcast. You put me out of business.
0: I've heard him on <laughs> things. And yeah, he, he's a super interesting dude. I heard him on the Dad Bod rap pod. Bay Area uh, hip hop podcast. He's great. I'm actually really interested to kind of dive into his career and see some of the other stuff that he's done. Because I know he has done some other stuff. I don't know if it's been specifically on hip hop. But I also know that he is like you also a teacher.
1: That's right. And also, I have never met him. I've only talked to him over social media. And Dan, if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong, I'm so sorry. I've been calling you Dan Charnas forever. But hopefully that's how you pronounce your last name. If not, and you hear this, Apologies. (laughs) Apologies.
0: <laughs> right on. That's what's up. Anything else to add?
1: That's it. I am so thankful for this opportunity. It's really fun. And um, it's good for me to be on the other side of the interview process because it reminds me how hard it is to be the person who's answering the questions. Um, the power dynamic has switched. And it's a good reminder for, you know, what I have people do all the time in my work which is make themselves vulnerable talk about themselves and um, really open themselves up to criticism and other people's opinions of them etc and that is not easy and so it's good for me to be in the practice of being on the other side of a conversation to understand how important that is and what a privilege it is to be able to ask the questions and have somebody else answer them.
0: That's going to do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guest, Shereen Madisol-Miraji. For more information on the resources mentioned in today's episode, please see our show notes or visit us at sandiegolibrary.org forward slash sdplpodcast. This podcast is supported by the Library Foundation SD. For more information on the good work they do, visit libraryfoundationsd.org. If you like what we're doing here at Listener's Advisory, please consider sharing our podcast on your social media. Leave us a rating or review via your favorite podcast directory or tell someone you know about us. Thanks in advance.